Hi, I'm John Robinette, one of your hosts for Mark's Chat. In light of the Association of Art Museum Directors' recent resolution regarding financial flexibility for their member institutions during this pandemic crisis, Arts Chat decided to investigate a little bit further what the implications are for uh, both the ethics involved and also for the field. So Amanda Robinson and I decided to check in with various experts to uh, explore what exactly those implications are. First, we'd like to welcome Sally Yurkovich. She is the chair of the ICOM Ethics Committee. She also wrote the book, A Practical Guide to Museum Ethics. She's a professor of ethical issues in museums at Columbia University. And she was also the chair of the AAM Direct Care Task Force, which was responsible for the most recent revision of their direct care guidelines. Thanks for joining us, Sally. Um, of course, we're here to talk about the recent resolution by AAMD uh, on the financial flexibility uh, in museums. So uh, as someone who's dealing with uh, ethics in museums directly and has a long history in it, um, I want to get your take on, on the statement because it does seem to represent a, a shift in ethics on their behalf. Of course, um, in very trying and unprecedented times. So, uh, yeah, what, what is your first take on the statement? Well, the, um, the statement is, has several different parts to it. Um, the first part really deals with restrictions on um, endowment funds or um, specific funds that, the, that museums have. Um, and that really, those restrictions really have no ethical implications. Um, there are some legal, there could be some legal issues there, but um, basically those are, those are separate from the major issue for um, ethics, which is the use of funds realized from the sale of deaccessioned objects. Um, the change that AAMD made, um, and they acknowledge this, makes their code of ethics essentially the same as what other associations have at the moment. Um, the American Alliance of Museums, the International Council of Museums, the um, American Association of State and Local History, all allow for funds from deaccessioned objects to be used either for acquisitions or for the direct care of objects or direct care of collections. So um, in that respect, AMD is just aligning their um, ethical code, their standards with other professional organizations. I see, I see. So um, in that respect, and, and, and well, have those other codes been in place for quite a while like that? Or is this, or are they kind of one by one coming into this realization? Um, the other, well, AAM's code has been in effect since the early 1990s. Um, and I think that the other codes have been, um, have followed suit. They've been, um, in place in the same way. Um, I'm not sure about ICOM. I know that the 2004 ICOM code has, has allowed for the use of, um, funds for 
collections care. ASLH um, has had their standards um, aligned with AAMs since the 90s as well. Yeah. So you're actually making it sound like uh, AAMD has been holding out on this uh, for a while. Um, is, is there, do you know that there would be real reason for that? Well, AAMD has taken a much harder line than, um, than the other organizations historically. Um, in part, it's because the art, art museum's collections are in many respects different from the other kinds of museum's collections. They're much more valuable. Um, and they're focused on, on a single, usually on a single, well, not a single genre because they have sculpture and other things as well as paintings, but um, still they're focused, they're, they're much more focused than collections in some other kinds of museums. <clears throat> and the um, guidelines, especially for AAM and ICOM, are guidelines that apply to a, a variety of kinds of museums. So in some senses, they are, um, you know, attuned to the needs of a wide range of institutions, um, whereas AAM is much more focused. So um, I think their, their code of ethics is, um, focus, it, it, their code of ethics represents um, a code that's suitable for the kind of museum, um, museums that they represent. I see. I see. Um, so you don't see it as um, something that may have broader, say, ongoing implications. Uh, perhaps maybe they adopt something to this effect that's more permanent as opposed to just the two years. Um, that's always a possibility. Um, yeah. It's, um, you know, the, the care of collections is a really important aspect of what museums do. And um, you know, when initially, when AAM tried to um, institute a very strict code of ethics, um, saying that museums could only use fund, only use funds from deaccessioning to acquire new objects, there was a lot of pushback um, from history museums. Um, natural history museums, museums that had a wider range of objects, and in some cases, as usually in the case of history museums, museums that weren't actively buying new things, but were instead accepting donations and then needing to ensure that they had the funds to take care of their, their collections. So the, um, the pressure from the other kinds of the sort of non-art museums um, made AM realized that they needed to have a much more flexible standard for deaccessioning. I see. Um, and so that's how the broader, broader, if you want to call it broader, that's how that stipulation, how direct care came into play. Right. So um, regarding the ethical issue then of the idea of being able to deaccession um, and put forth 100% of those proceeds to direct care and that much debated term direct care um, is so, so maybe it's not quite as much of an ethical issue as it seems to be or quite as much of an ethical shift. Is that possible? 
Um, it could be possible. I mean, I think you have to, it, when you, when something like this comes out, when a you know statement like this comes out, it's very easy to say, okay, this means if you need money to take care of your collections, you can sell things from your, from your um, collection in order to get that money. And in fact, it's not quite like that. Um, in fact, what AM calls for is that if you want to use money for direct care of collections, you need to think about that, what that means for your institution, quite separate from any specific instance of selling something. So that you need to establish for your institution what direct care of collections means and put that in your collections policy. Then when it comes to the point at which you're deaccessioning something, you have guidance about how you can use the funds from it. But it's not a, you know, it's not a, a okay, now I can do this, let's go up and sell things kind of um, yeah. equation. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and even that reality uh, is is very difficult, um, especially, you know, in a time like now where, you know, the, the market for selling things would either be bad or just difficult to find a buyer, uh, potentially anyway, um, right. unless it's a, a private um, institution. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's definitely not as easy as... as um, as, as it seems, but also the other part of their statement revolved around, you know, um, using things for operating costs, um, which they permitted what 5% to, to be used in sort of an endowment type of way. So you would actually, or, or accessing endowed funds as well, which I guess that is less of a, um, not, as you mentioned before, it's not really an ethical issue. It's just a sort of a legal issue that has to be sorted out internally. Right. 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 So, um, so how do you feel this will work? Do you think it'll have the intended results that, uh, that they aspire to? Um, I would hope so. I think it's, um, um, we'll see. We'll see how it works, but I, I would think that it will be, um, it will free up some museums to be able to take care of their collections at this point in time and, um, you know, not be as concerned about them as they might have been otherwise. Right. Now, we have the, the privilege of recording this conversation after we saw... Um, um, Mr. Brent Benjamin speak yesterday on the topic. He, of course, is the president of AAMD, um, and he, you know, did a live Q and A about it. Um, and he um, was very clear that not everyone, not all of the AAMD members, there's what 270 plus members, member museums, uh, are actually on board with this topic. And um, I'm wondering who, what types of institutions might actually try to take advantage of this um, financial flexibility, as they call it? Um, it's, I mean, it's difficult to say. Um, as he mentioned yesterday, um, you know, every museum is different. <laughs> and so it's hard to, um, it's hard to know if there's a particular category of museums that would object to this. Um, I think that, um, you know, it's just, it's difficult to make a, you know, blanket statement 
about it, yeah. but it is this issue has always been one that's been very controversial. And so it doesn't surprise me that there's a disagreement among the art museums about whether this is a good idea or not. There's always a fear that by opening the door and allowing for other uses of funds from deaccessioning that you're at the top of a, of a very slippery slope. And um, once the door is open, then um, you're going to be, you know, start wanting to, um, to be able to use the funds for things that like for, um, for expenses that may not be as appropriate. So I think that's, I think that's part of the, um, part of the issue that people are thinking about right now. Is there an ethical debate to be had about using funds to save a museum uh, and, you know, if, if the museum will have to say close because they, because of the time, because they don't have the, the funds to remain open um, and deaccession in order to, to do that. So, um, you know, saving jobs, saving an institution and all of which is part of caring for a collection um, and caring for objects. I mean, is, is there, is there a, there's a, it feels like there's a discussion to be had there as well. Yeah, there is. I think though that um, you know usually this kind of this question comes to light at the point when institutions are in such bad shape that one of their only alternatives is to sell things from their collection to get money. Um, AAM, AAM has um, started a dialogue about this, trying to make people aware of the fact that um, it's really earlier than that, that museums need to acknowledge their financial distress if they have it. And they need to be much more transparent um, with themselves, um, or they need to be more frank with themselves to admit that, gee, there may be a problem here, and maybe we should do something about it before we get to the point of having the alternative be selling the collections or closing. Right, right. So it's really a, a last-ditch effort if you're talking about deaccessioning to to save a museum. It usually is, um, and in a majority of the cases, I think it's not always been a successful effort um, mm -hmm. because more needs to be done than just getting a quick infusion of cash from selling objects. Right, and right. also um, very often when that happens museums are selling some of their most valuable objects in order to be able to get um, a significant amount of money. And you have to ask the question then, are they really um, jeopardizing their ability to be an effective um, institution for the public by doing right. that? Right, right. So. Um, do you see any other issues uh, arising as a result of this statement or or could you also look at this statement and see it's not really that big deal it's a lifeline to some institutions and in two years we'll be back to how we were before maybe you know maybe not a hundred percent or but largely uh i mean how how is what, what's a way to look at this and what are your well, points of view i think it's a um a way to open the conversation about this for art museums. Um, I, it's hard to um, imagine that 
art museums aren't having some of the same issues that other kinds of museums like history museums um, have been dealing with for a while. Many of them have very large collections and many of them have um, difficulty in raising the money just to take care of the collections. So um, this may be for some museums um, something that they will want to, to continue to be able to do even after the two-year time period is up. Maybe not, but I think that it opens up a conversation um, that hasn't, that's probably been bubbling under the surface for a while. Right. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Right. I read something, I think it was this morning that I read, uh, I wish I could remember where it was. Another distinguishing factor with art museums is that unlike say a history museum, art museums are always acquiring. And that is really kind of, they don't live in a, they're not preserving a moment in time. And mm -hmm. so deaccessioning has to be on some level, a part of their program. And um, so, I mean, yeah. And, and, you know, there was talk about that yesterday, how, uh, yeah, deaccessioning is just a part of existing. Um, it's housekeeping to some degree. Yeah. I think it's really important that um, that we talk more about these issues and about how um, you know deaccessioning is a regular part of of a museum's operations. Um, I was I thought that um, Brent and Benjamin made some really good points yesterday about the fact that sometimes um, you know a museum has two pieces of art by the same artist, um, both of which may be quite valuable. One is better than the other. Do they need both of them? Um, you know, those are questions that art museums ask all the time. And they get raked over the coals sometime for selling the uh, work by a famous artist. And the other side of the story isn't told, that they, in fact, have additional pieces by the same artist that are, in fact, of higher quality, um, than the one that they're selling. And I think it's it's important for people to understand the kinds of decisions that we have to make when we're taking care of collections um, and thinking about using them for the benefit of the public. Right, right. So in the end, maybe we, um, we don't look at it quite so much as, um, you know, putting it in the most sort of, crass way of you know monetizing uh, right. a collection by by deaccessioning it and that's certainly not what they're advocating here because there are so many restrictions in place um regarding this this current resolution um but i think it was certainly taken that way and maybe taken out of context that way um so so maybe the that we can downplay slightly the ethical debate to be had there that, that people are capitalizing on on the collection, would that be fair to say? Um, I'm sorry, your the audio just broke up. Oh yeah, no problem. I uh, I was just saying maybe we. Do you think it's fair to say that we can downplay the ethical debate a little bit uh, surrounding the monetization of a collection um, through deaccessioning in terms of this statement and this resolution? I would hope so. I mean, I, I would hope that it would at least make us able to talk about some of these issues in not quite so contested an environment. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that I wrote the book that I wrote was that I hope that people would think about 
some of the ethical issues related to how museums operate in an absent a, a, um, a real crisis and just get used to thinking about some of these um, ethical dilemmas or ethical <laughs> points. Um, <laughs> sorry. But That's funny. No. Um, <laughs> now I have to credit him too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry. That's fine. It's part of our life now. Very we all expect it. At any moment, my child will come in. Right. So anyway, that, that we can talk about these things in a less heated environment and, um, you know, grapple with some of the, some of the serious issues that, that we do face. Um, yeah. So, okay. Anyway. Um, do you have any final thoughts or comments? Um. No, I think this is, I, I'm, um, I guess I'm pleased to see this in a, in a way in that I think it, um, it's a, it allows um, the museum feel to think again about deaccessioning, about why we do it and um, why it's necessary. And it allows us to talk more publicly about it, which I think is a healthy, healthy issue. Um, and helps make what we do more transparent and perhaps even more interesting to the public. Mm, yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for your time. And uh, we appreciate all of your insight into, into this issue because I think um, a lot of people got very uh, nervous <laughs> at first yeah. when they read it. So uh, especially as collections care professionals where we're like, oh my God, we're going to be what? <laughs> right, exactly. But, no, I know. Um, well, deaccessioning is such a difficult process or labor-intensive process that yeah. I can certainly understand that. Um, yeah. yeah. So, well, great. Thank you so much again. And, um, and uh, you know, we, uh, we look forward to following what you do and uh, all of your uh, upcoming work. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Mark Gold. He's a partner in the law firm of Smith Green and Gold LLP in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. Mark holds a master's in museum studies from Harvard University, as well as degrees in economics and international studies from the American University and a law degree from Georgetown University. His practice includes business law and nonprofit and museum law, and he has served on numerous nonprofit boards, including the New England Museum Association. Mark has also served as legal counsel to the Berkshire Museum in connection with its recent deaccessioning and sale. So Mark, what's your first impression of the statement? Uh, my first impression is that it really doesn't make uh, much of a difference in a practical sense. Uh, AAMD specifically says that it's changing. It's not changing its principles. It's just uh, withholding sanctions. And sanctions don't matter to museums that are trying to survive. Uh, we know that from Delaware, Berkshire, and others. But I think it makes a big difference philosophically. Um, the rules of AAM and AAMD around the use of proceeds were fixed, firm, and inflexible. No prisoners taken, no exceptions. Uh, and for a number of years, and in light of uh, actions like Berkshire's and Delaware, uh, there's been a question of, well, sh should survival of a museum be an exception? Uh, and the important ramification of what uh, AAMD just did is to sort of validate that survival might be an exception. And if it's okay to, to use proceeds of the accessioning to survive in a pandemic, 
then why not if the existential threat is uh, comes from somewhere else or something else? And, and that's, that's a big, big question. And then the conversation also becomes that if we're going to have an exception, if now survival is an exception, are there other exceptions that should be an appropriate? should be appropriate. And that, again, is a very different conversation. And as we look at exceptions, we look at ranking priorities. So we weigh the um, duplicative, inferior painting in the basement with survival, survival wins. What if we weigh that maybe four months ago, we might have been weighing that against paying everyone in the museum a living wage. You know, what is the higher priority there. And now it's this painting in the basement that most people would be happy to deaccession against bringing people back to the museum and give it, getting their jobs back. So um, I think just by the nature of that, it's going to be a very interesting conversation. And AAMD is basically, whether you call it a slippery slope or the trainings leaving the station or whatever it is, it's going to be, it's, it's big. Uh, and I love, there was a, if I could read it, there was a quote from art, an art lawyer and blogger, Don Zaretsky in Art News. And his quote was, after this, no one should ever again be able to argue with a straight face that there is only one good use of the accessioning proceeds. We now know with certainty that isn't the case. The AAMD itself just told us so. Do you think that this new resolution will work as it's intended? for the short period of time? I honestly don't think it's gonna have much effect one way or the other. Uh, you know, AAMD is pretty clear that there's, their principles still apply. They're just not going to impose any punishment. And the fact is that the punishments have been honestly meaningless. <laughs> and I don't think they deter conduct. And I don't think uh, the punishments are taken very seriously. They, they seem to be kind of short-sighted. You know, why would you, punish the public by not allowing loans back and forth between museums or collaborations, uh, who's punished there. And in mm -hmm. fact, they're not, um, you know, they're, I have evidence, hard evidence I can share with you later that people sort of ignore them anyway. So no, I don't think the fact that they're not going to sanction museums means anything at all. Uh, it's going to be business as usual. Yeah. And that's another follow-up question is how badly do AMD sanctions hurt? And for example, with the Berkshire Museum, they've been sanctioned by AMD. What have been the ramifications of that? Okay, well, I, th um, I think it's interesting that the, the actual sanction, uh, the, the sanction to the Berkshire Museum and LaSalle was sanctioned at the same time, was uh, each of the association's 243 members refrained from lending or borrowing works of art to either the Berkshire Museum or the LaSalle University Art Museum and to refrain from collaborating with either institution on exhibitions. And that was prefaced by saying, the, which affected me, ask that each of the association's members do this. When the sanctions were imposed on Randolph College and Mayer Museum two, three years before that, it was the same language except that the sanctions will include instructions to our members. Uh, I mean, that's just sort of a fun fact <laughs> that something mm -hmm. happened. I mean, AMD is intentional about its language. These are important words. Uh, and my guess is that someone explained to them about anti-boycott and anti, uh, antitrust legislation and that you can't go around instructing your members, of which the Berkshire Museum is not one, by the way, <laughs> uh, not to, you know, to boycott other 
institutions. So it became mm-hmm. an, a request instead of an instruction. That's just a fun fact. But within four months of the sanctions, a very prominent member of um, AAMD, a museum, requested an object from Berkshire Museum for a loan for its exhibition. So, uh, you know, I, I think these rules aren't, ad- or requests aren't adhered to all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing, the common, uh, the other common um, prediction is, gee, no one's going to want to lend anymore. You want to, no donor's going to want to give art to the Berkshire Museum. No donors are going to support it. And within a month or so of the controversy ending, or a couple of months, we had a, the Berkshire Museum had a, a request to accept a collection of art valued well into the seven figures. Uh, and it came stipulated with, and if you need to sell these, it's okay with us. So, you know, it just, you know, the Berkshire Museum is a pariah in some people's minds, but membership is up, it's stable. People, when they, when they think about donating, they aren't donating to a failed institution. They don't, they're donating to a museum that is, is viable, it's stable, it's sustainable, and they're comfortable helping with its growth. So... There, I don't. The answer is I don't think there's been a practical effect. And I, we do. We're actually involved in a study now, looking at sanctions, museum mm-hmm. on a case study, looking at the various museums that what and asking what effect has it had. Um, my guess is going to be none. Mm-hmm. But, it's interesting because we had talked a little bit before about um, direct care, which is a term that is part of the resolution that A and D is now allowing for art institutions or member institutions to put funding toward with the accession funds. And one of the confusing things that I found about that resolution is that many large institutions have a definition for direct care based on AAN's um, guidelines that were released, or I think updated in March, 2019. Um, And it made me wonder, have there been any ramifications to institutions that have used funding in the past prior to this resolution um, towards direct care or what they've defined as direct care? Yeah, I, I don't think, unless, except in the cases of the museums like Berkshire and Randolph and some of the others that have gone, you know, been totally uh, transparent and said, here's what we're going to use the proceeds for. It's a big deaccessioning. Here's what we're going to use the proceeds for. And by the way, it is survival and not direct care. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when they've been roundly criticized. I think AAM, it's taken a long time to come up with its white paper to define direct care. And before then, and I think AAMD kind of implicitly recognizes this, is that, and I don't know what the right metaphor is, it's a pretty big loophole, whether you can drive a truck through it or a freight train or whatever the metaphor is for this loophole. It's mm. how do you know what it is? And unless a board, a trustee or an employee would go rogue, the fact that one museum is using the proceeds to put a new roof over a gallery that sustain that houses art. Is that direct mm-hmm. care? What if the the roof covers also part of the administrative uh, wing? You know, you get into those issues. And I think AAM was extremely wise and thoughtful in developing the white paper. And kudos to Sally for doing it that way and her committee to say each board needs to look at this. Here's the matrix uh, mm-hmm. and decide for itself. And, right. and recognizing, more importantly, that it was a board issue to decide what direct care is. That said, just for the fun of it, I took the matrix and applied what Berkshire Museum did. And you could make a case <laughs> that keeping the museums out, sort of alive is actually mm-hmm. the highest form of direct care you can have. Interesting. 
So with that, with that in mind, talking a little bit about using funds now for direct care, do you, do you think there's potential for abuse with this rule? I think, oh yeah, I think there's always been potential for abuse, but mm. the, the, the underlying assumption there is that there's something wrong with using uh, the proceeds of deaccessioning for, for something other than to, to keep the museum alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think museums that do, do use funds from deaccessioning for that purpose, uh, they're not inhibited in any way by what definition direct care might otherwise mean. I don't know if that answers your question or not. Well, it's something to, it's just something to consider because I think when you have a, a constant guiding uh, professional rule, like principle for so long to come in and say, okay, well, well, now this one thing that's widely accepted by other disciplines in the museum field, we're going to now accept as well. I, th- I think it's very easy for, um, per- collect, especially collections care professionals, to be concerned about there becoming abuse with uh, that change. Uh, I know a lot of university museums as well can, their governing bodies can have different perspectives on, you know, what a, what a museum collection might mean to them and the asset that it might be. And there's a lot of struggle and there's been, there's always been a lot of conversation about universities supporting museum uh, field ethics. And one of them being that you don't capitalize your collection. um, You don't sell it off to fund other programs at your university, things like that. And that's where I would be worried about the rule being a little, abused because sometimes at a higher authority or governing level, it, those field-based ethics or standards aren't well-known. Maybe they're not accepted or adopted at a university level. That university is still your governing body. And, and that's where I am sometimes worried about the abuse coming through. Yeah. And, and I guess one of my concerns, you're calling it abuse. There's a lot of judgment involved in that. Mm-hmm. It is behavior that's inconsistent with this professional standard. Uh, and one, I, you know, we talked about not getting into, is it a good standard or a bad standard? But mm-hmm. boards of trustees are, and, and you are correct in identifying a real difference between a university or any kind of parent organization and a freestanding mm-hmm. museum. And that's why so many of the cases actually involve university museums, because that board looks at it and says, you know, what, what resources do we have that we're applying to education of our students? That's our mission is education, not preserving objects. And when you take, I think University of Iowa has a Jackson Pollock that, I, again, I maybe don't quote, well, too late. <laughs> uh, I, I think it's a 30 or $40 million painting. And in fairness, I think the trustees of University of Iowa would look at that and say, gee, if we had 30 or $40 million, is that the best educational resource we could buy with it? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what boards of trustees do. So yeah. it, this is not legal. There's nothing legal about these practices and rules. Uh, mm-hmm. And their genesis is suspect to begin with, as we can talk about if you want. But it's... You know, it's just what are the resources of this organization? How are we going to deploy them? And what's the highest priority is staying alive and sustaining our mission, not mm-hmm. preserving a singular object. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure it's abuse. It may be we've decided to, that this guideline or this uh, practice is irrelevant. I, I, yeah, so I, I'm, not, well, I'm really- still not comfortable I'm answering your question, but. No, no, it's good. And it's more of a conversation because what we're hoping to do is just bring information and perspectives to this resolution so that 
um, colleagues out there, institutions out there have a stronger understanding as, as to how this will affect them and can affect them for the next two years for as long as this resolution is in place. And I think that's actually a nice segue into, you know, can we come, can we go back from here? You know, we're now at this point, like you said, it took a pandemic to bring us here, but is there, can we go back? Will we be able to go back? Will it maybe not be as scary as we've assumed this change might be, but maybe beneficial? You mean the change in when the AMD resolution. is done? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, they haven't changed anything. They've just suspended some right. sanctions, but it's opened up the conversation. And there's, uh, the, the question you ask is a really good one because there's something else going on concurrently with this that is, I think, very much related and may actually cause a different answer to your question than if this wasn't going on. And that is the whole issue around layoffs and furloughs and mm-hmm. what the museum world is going to look like for so many museum professionals who have lost their jobs. I mean, before this all happened, there was a lot of discussion around systemic undercompensation, salary inequities, and there are those including me and some other people mostly in who write for who are involved in academic institutions or legal institutions that say you know let's look at deploying resources and if there is salary inequity or systemic undercompensation are there resources that can be applied to solve those problems and somebody like um, Michael O'Hare from the who, who wrote an essay um, it was museums can change will they uh, looks in the basement and says, here's some stuff, you know, here, here's some piece of works that are being kept, will never be shown, will never be exhibited anymore. And what could they be used? What could, how could they be redeployed, monetized, mm-hmm. <laughs> for lack of a better word, to solve some problems? And they can be. But now it's, you know, a lot of museum professionals felt, oh no, our job is to preserve all of those things. Now the really hard question for the field will be, at what personal price, at what price to us as individuals and as a field are we preserving those? Is it, you know, it, this doesn't apply to all museums, is it keeping us from being rehired? Is it keeping, uh, four months ago we would have said, is it keeping us from being paid fairly, a living wage or salary inequity adjusted? Because we have to keep that thing in the basement where we could deploy the value to solve these problems in the field. It's going to be much more urgent to say, all right, can we get people rehired? Can we kickstart this by saying, okay, maybe we can deaccession some of the stuff that's in the basement because it's never going to be shown. It costs, you know, the normal rules of deaccessioning, what's appropriate mm-hmm. for deaccessioning, let's apply it and then take the proceeds to fix this compensation issue. Or in this, in our case now, to bring back all of these people who deserve these jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, think if if the field the individuals in the field will put down the kool-aid long enough to think about what's the effect of retaining all of these things as to my career the answer might be different it's a really interesting perspective and something to definitely consider uh, in light of the resolution and as we go forward trying to climb out of it right and the resolution is doesn't really it doesn't affect very much at all but it's Mm -hmm. this huge opening to have a a sustained discussion and Mm -hmm. it's it's an acknowledgement that maybe you know just maybe there are some exceptions to this i I just if i may i just wanted to read you one thing that i was going as preparing for today um i found a uh, a letter to the berkshire eagle letter to the editor of the berkshire eagle that was signed by um 
Lori Fogarty, who was then the president of AAMD, and Laura Lott, who then and is now, as you know, the, um, whatever she is, the CEO of AAM. And it was talking, of course, about the Berkshire Museum. This is the, the local newspaper for the Berkshire Museum. And there's one paragraph that says, even during the Great Depression, American cities and American people believed that great culture institutions made a city great. They believed in the enduring principle that the museum is there to save the collection. The collection is not there to save the museum. And I mm -hmm. think it's kind of ironic, <laughs> ironic that in, in putting this letter together in 2017, they reference it even in this situation where the great where there was a Great Depression. And now we have what may be a Great Depression, but certainly a, a, a societal and economic uh, situation that, that rivals it. Mm -hmm. Even in those situations, there is no deviation from the rule. And it's now 2020, and at least one of these organiza organizations is saying, well, maybe there is. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, in writing, really in writing this, I don't think they had a clue that there might be another one. You know, they were saying, well, see, even when things are bad, we stick with this. And now it's when things are bad, maybe we don't stick with this anymore. Well, what was it that you were mentioning um, earlier when we were chatting that ethics and principles are tested in the worst of times or something to, something to that effect? Like until we are faced with the problem itself and a reality of it, you know, it's hard to put our ethics or principles to task. It's kind um, of a platitude that I'm, I don't know that I could recall right now. But the point was that, um, I mean, there is that principle that ethics are kind of easy when things are good, when there are no yeah. challenges to them. And ethics are a little bit harder and, and they're really put to the test when the decisions are more difficult. And I think, yeah. and one of the things AAM did when it put this rule into effect in the early 1990s was to stick it in the silo of ethics. Uh, AAMD keeps it as a principle. Right. Um, AAM could have said, this is, an, uh, this, this is a matter of, it, it is actually relating to accounting principles. It's a matter of bookkeeping. It's a matter of how do we report our assets. But we're mm -hmm. going to stick it in the ethical, under the, in the code of ethics. We're going to put it there. So if it, if I, I, that's why I challenge these organizations. If you're going to call these things ethics, then shouldn't they really apply even when it's hard? Right. But right. you're not. You're kind of saying, yeah, they really are ethics. But gee, that sure is hard to go by them now because museums might fail. So even then, are they really ethics, or were they just guidelines or recommendations? But to cloak them in this aura of ethics. And then when things get bad, say, okay, but we're not going to enforce them anymore. Mm -hmm. Seems hypocritical to me. Surely. That's, that's fascinating. And I think that's actually a really good way to end, end the conversation here and uh, <laughs> let the people take it and do with it what they will. Thank you so much for your time and insight, Mark. It's been invaluable. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Go ahead and resume. And I can the say, and that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll pose the question to you then. How is what's happening now comparable to what happened with the Berkshire Museum? I think that's a really good question, and it's a fascinating comparison because if this if this conversation we're having now is leading to a point where, in a situation where museum survival is at risk because of the pandemic, then the rules might be different. 
we might accept behavior now that we would not, you know, wish were the case before. And, and that is uh, the epitome of a slippery slope <laughs> or not. And saying, okay, well then, how, how does that apply to Berkshire and to Delaware Museum of Art and those who have done the same thing, where they said there are conditions that exist in our world, in our community, that are going to cause the demise of this institution. Therefore, it's necessary for us to use the proceeds of deaccessioning to stay alive. You know, those conditions might be, in the case of Pittsfield, Massachusetts, Berkshire County, declining enrollment, a declining demographic, uh, social needs, uh, a big loss in the uh, industrial base, uh, a loss of traditional support for the museum competition with world-class organizations in the area like Mass Mocha and the Clark, uh, and this is just a regional museum. Then the question becomes, well, wait a second, who are we to judge the causes for existential threat. You know, in the case of a pandemic, it's okay to sell something and use the proceeds to stay alive. But in another case, we're going to say, no, that's not okay. So I think museum associations are going to be hard pressed if this conversation continues to say, we'll be the judge of why you're dying. (laughs) You know, and if you're dying from this, then you can save yourself. If you're dying from that, you can't. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that is just nonsensical you know I mean, who makes those terms who makes those decisions those calls i'm john robinette today i'm joined with steven schindler and katie wilson milne from the art law podcast and also from the law firm of schindler cohen and hawkman uh, they're both partners there Uh, I asked them to join us today to discuss the recent uh, statement put out by the Art, uh, the Association of Art Museum Directors (AAMD) on their loosening of the um, restrictions on accepting donations and using them for things other than bettering uh, the collections. And so um, now their their idea is that they're not going to. they're not going to be uh, putting any further restrictions or punitive actions towards members who are, if, uh, if I can say this properly, who will be um, using donor funds for these actions. So uh, with us to discuss it uh, is the Art Law Podcast here. And um, I was drawn to them simply because they, uh, not only because of their legal angle, but because they've covered this issue before for the Berkshire Museum. Um, you'll recall starting in 2017, 2018, 18, the Berkshire Museum uh, launched into a large deaccession program in order to fund um, the museum and their operating procedures because they had fallen on extremely hard times. And that deaccession program included selling some of their major works, generating over, I think, $15 million in revenue. So um, first off, I want to start out by asking about that. Uh, what What is your impression of the statement that AAMD released? And also, is it comparable to what happened at the Berkshire Museum? So the statement that AAMD released um, is interesting in that it signals to the art community that this is a very special time and that AAMD is not being as strict as it normally is in its view of deaccessioning or use of uh, certain pots of funding. But it doesn't actually change anything. So what the AMD is saying now is that um, certain otherwise restricted funds can be used for operating expenses 
Um, so endowment funds, not the principal, but the interest on the endowment funds that might otherwise and often is restricted to non-operating um, uses can now be used without sanction by the AAMD for operating expenses and salaries and things like that. The other, uh, there are two other changes in that regard. One is that um, pots of restricted donor fund funds or you know philanthropic giving that may have been given in a restricted nature. Um, the AMD will no longer sanction museums if they use the principal or interest on those uh, those gifts for operating expenses. And the third is um, the 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 AMD will no longer sanction its member institutions, its museums for um, the use of. Uh, interest that might accrue on on the principal from the accession works. So a museum, as they often do, will deaccession a work um, and under existing AMD guidelines, that's fine if the it's done according to institutional policies that are set in place and is only used to purchase additional works for the collection following certain guidelines. Now the AMD is saying, um, you can actually, you can sell a work, and if you invest the proceeds from that sale, you can use the income on that investment now to support operating expenses. So, you know, one question Steve and I have, are, uh, in this climate, we're not quite sure what kind of investment income any institution is going to be getting from investing the proceeds of sales, so I don't know how useful that is, but it is a shift. And then, uh, aside from those three areas, in terms of uh, the use of otherwise restricted funds for, for operating expenses, the AMD is now saying, look, our policy that we're not changing says you can't use funds from deaccessioning other than to purchase new works. But we will not sanction you until April 2022 if you now use the proceeds of those funds, so not just the interest, but also the principal, if you use it for care of collections. Um, so that's a slight loosening of the AMD's very, very strict rule previously. Now, um, other institutions and organizations have long argued that those kind of restrictions should allow for use of deaccessioning funds for care of collections, not just the purchase of new works. And in fact, that is the law in New York State, which is one of the only states that has um, an actual legislative uh, limitation on the use of funds from deaccessioned works. But the AMD has been stricter. So those are the areas that the AMD has made statements about. It's not that the AMD is allowing it or they have any power to, it's just that they're not going to punish its members for doing those things until April 2020. Sorry, right. April 2022. I think right. that's really a key point here is that, you know, the AAMD is, of course, a voluntary organization. And what it says has an impact on their members and on museums generally. But all of the things that they're uh, commenting on are governed uh, in most cases either by, by contracts, by, by donor instruments, and, and in some cases the law. Uh, and so the fact that they're now saying that they won't sanction for some of these types of activities does not at all 
still mean that museums are free to do so. Right. So, for example, um, two helpful examples. One is a museum's own endowment might be restricted in terms of how its, well, its principal is usually never supposed to be used, but how its principal and interest can be used by the museum's own internal policies. And unless those internal policies were changed, you know, usually by an act of the board, the institution would be violating its own governing documents if it were to go ahead and use those proceeds differently. Uh, the other is if a donor makes a restricted gift, and the only way a gift is restricted is if there's some gift instrument that the you know museum and the donor agrees to in signs that says these funds will only be used in a certain way. The museum is not free just because the AAMD says it's not going to punish it to go break that contract. So there's still a legally operative document there that unless the donor agrees to the change um, could be a legal problem. Now, I think what the AMD is doing is trying to signal to donors that they should be very receptive to those types of requests. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, couldn't internally an institution just draw up their own doctrine and say, we define direct care as such. And, you know, in the AAMD statement, they refer to the AAM direct care policy for how to you as a guideline to create these policies. And it's very much driven by, by ethics, but, um, you, couldn't you just draw up your internal policy to, to, to reflect, you know, your own definition of direct care, receive donor funds, use them in within your own definition and not get sanctioned by, uh, AAMD. In other words, the Berkshire Museum, for example, was very explicit about breaking with that policy, and therefore they got sanctioned by AAMD. But couldn't couldn't that actually happen? To the contrary. Well, I th I think the Berkshire Museum example is it's, it's it's a good one, but it's also it's it's strikingly different uh, than anything contemplated here. I mean, I think the Berkshire Museum, you know, they made a decision uh, somewhat. Um, you know, uh, not transparently uh, right. to um, to sell off the the heart of their collection in order to embark on an entirely new uh, kind of operation to build a science museum, and and part of the problem was one I mean that they were using the principle of of deaccessioning a major part of its collection to um, to go into an entirely new line of work. And I think that was, I don't think there's anything in this statement or in the definition of direct care that would envelop or contemplate a situation like this. I think you're right, which is that direct care is, the definition of that is left, um, you know, to, to policy making at each museum. But I don't think, um, I don't think that that goes beyond the sort of traditional care and maintenance of a collection. It certainly doesn't yeah. doesn't entitle a museum to go and um, you know spend it on um, on operations in general. Yeah, and right. recall that um, you know in the Berkshire Museum example, the AMD normal rules do not allow for care of collections use or direct care use of um, of funds from deaccessioned works. So it, it's really restricted. And, and this is not true for all uh, ethical uh, organizations or uh, member organizations like this. But the AMD rules are you, you can only use it to buy new stuff and in really limited circumstances. So 
Um, at that time, the AMD had not loosened these sanctions rules. They had not said it's okay to use um, the proceeds from the sale of collections on direct care. That was not the case during the Berkshire Museum controversy. But I totally agree with Steve. I don't think it would have been different because that was such a unique circumstance. Right. And the Berkshire Museum was really doing many things in a non-transparent manner um, that caused the, the opposition received. Now, do you see any longer-term ramifications from this, even though this is has a very finite and very specific end date? Um, now that they've opened this door, what are some possible long-term uh, results? Um, I'm sure Steve and I both have thoughts on this. I think this <laughs> is a great question because I think it also it anticipates um, – something that was actually happening long before the coronavirus shutdown. Um, you know, the landscape of most museums in the United States has changed drastically over the last hundred or so years. So we have some mega museums in big cities like San Francisco, LA, and New York, you know, to some extent, Boston, to some extent, you know, Philadelphia, Cleveland, but for many museums uh, like the Berkshire Museum, um, or, you know, the Delaware Museum of Art, they, their funding landscape to, has really changed and they have very few assets. They don't have a billion dollar endowment, you know, like the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I don't, that's not the exact number, but it's, it's a large endowment. Um, I think there's this 3 billion. Um, I just yes, heard Dan Weiss on a podcast <laughs> talking about it. Which so. is a lot, right? It's a lot yeah. of money. It's more than most universities. So, the AMD um, statement that we've been talking about really benefits the, the very biggest museums that have endowment funds, that have a lot of restricted gifts and ongoing right. support. And it, it doesn't do much to help these smaller museums that were already struggling. And, you know, they, they, they're cash poor. They have a lot of assets, often donations that were given a long time ago when their uh, geographic location was wealthier. And, they all they have they have they're faced with what they think is a choice and i think you know is is understandably feels like a choice between selling off some of these assets which could uh be quite lucrative or going out of business because they have no other funding and that problem i think is exacerbated by the current situation um by the current shutdown so it's not that it's new but i i do think we're going to see more pressure to change guidelines like these and uh, more debate about whether it really makes sense to forbid under all circumstances uh, liquidating parts of collections to stay open. Right. And I think it also, it, it presses the, the ethical question, right? Because um, you see these enormous layoffs now in museums. Um, uh, MoMA PS1 uh, laid off 70% uh, of its staff. And so, you know, the question that people will also be asking is, you know, what do we preference here, um, people or some of the sort of things and relics of our collection? And I think it, it, it to, to build on what Katie said, it, it sort of, and, and this is a little bit of what happened at Berkshire, even though they handled it, I think, um, poorly, is there are these real tensions um, that exist in, in operating a museum today, uh, employing people and trying to 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 pay them fairly, and 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 these collections that have been 
growing over the years and require, you know, tremendous. So these are really um, important questions. And I think it seems to me that what the AMD was doing was, was just giving their members a little bit of some, you know, flexibility, as I said, or wiggle room to understand that this is, this is a very difficult time and we're going to, um, we're going to take that into account. Um, and of course, you know, not everybody in the world cares about what the AAMD says and about their rules. I think it, it, it tends to resonate a little bit more with, um, you know, with a kind of, uh, somewhat more, um, I don't know if you want to call it elite crowd, but not everybody in the community served by these museums is as sympathetic to, you know, the AMD um, ethical principles as, as, as others. Yeah. Well, it seems that, and, and, and even amongst my colleagues, I just want to be clear, there's no real consensus. There's some that say ethics are ethics, are ex- ethics and, you know, if we, if we throw them out for these purposes, although they are well-intended, they cease to be ethics. And when you look at these statements and the original statements surrounding it, both with AAM, AMD, they're very clear, you know, financial hard times shouldn't matter. And now, of course, there's no end in sight for these fi- financial hard times right now. So, um, but I, I wanted to ask if, um, if you think that there's any room for abuse within these, uh, this, this loosening of the restrictions? Um, I think it's unlikely because I think, you know, again, these are not legal rules. These are just, these are, you know, totally voluntary membership codes of conduct. Um, you know, the AMD seems to be worried about that because in their statement, they specifically say this is not an invitation to deaccession work. So please don't do that. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I think this could develop and we'll see, but my instinct now is that the deaccessioning that's going to occur now is going to occur whether the AMD issued a statement about this or not. Um, I think what it really signals is that even within the AMD, which has been, as I said, the strictest, you know, and, 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 um, you know, sort of unwilling to compromise about this principle of, of the use of deaccession funds from deaccessioning that there's there, this circumstance is the thing that is causing even within that entity some questioning um, of that bright line rule because of the exigency of the circumstances um, and like you said I think there's no end in sight to that and, and the choice between for some museums selling a painting that's been in storage for decades and that no one looks at and keeping a couple jobs is a really hard one. And it's hard to explain, you know, to the, to the audience. Right. right. I, I think it also presumes a market that a robust market that doesn't really exist at this very moment. Um, so, right. you know, obviously when the Berkshire museum was, was auctioning off their collection, they were in a different kind of um, art environment and could command better prices, even though they, they, they weren't able to sell everything that they were trying to sell. Um, and now we've got, you know, a, a very difficult auction market, a difficult selling market, and, and then not a lot of places to put the proceeds of those funds to generate income that's going to be meaningful. So 
I think that puts maybe a, a little bit of a break on on the notion that there there could be room for abuse. I mean that, and I think the the legal strictures governing um, you know restricted funds uh, I think will you know will will still be there. I think there's also a, a PR side to this too. Now that they've done this, many museums may not do it just from you know fear of. Uh, repercussions from the public. Um, and likewise, if, uh, like, as you say, like who's going to buy these things and, you know, it's probably either a private collector, uh, but you know, a big museum who just furloughed 70% of their staff can't be seen as going out and buying, you know, works that were released by another institution, um, because of the loosening of these restrictions. So that's, um, perhaps another point of view. Um, my last question is, uh, how badly, in fact, do you think these AAMD sanctions actually hurt an institution? Um, I mean, is it is it worth even worrying about? Well, you know, look, we've seen uh, examples of institutions that have been willing to thumb their nose at them. And once they make that decision, they understand what the consequences are. Um, you know, you, you can't, you can't, borrow works, uh, you can't participate in, um, you know, traveling exhibitions and the like. And, you know, you're probably going to be barred from some cocktail parties. But I think, you know, the reality is, you know, I think major museums will try to stay within the guidelines as they did before. But, you know, for for sort of more outlying situations, um, I could see a scenario where a, a smaller museum just decides I, you know, it's not the most important um, uh, thing in the world. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, to your question before, maybe, maybe there is a world in which more and more smaller museums do take these actions and decide that they're just not, they're not in the AMD universe and that's not going to be a principle they follow with respect to deaccessioning at least. Um, and, and maybe that will make other organizations more comfortable with doing the same. You know, there's a big difference between a world where no one's doing it and when there's more and more examples of it happening um, and being justified, you know, at least internally. Right. And, right. and you have, have seen in the past number of years uh, prominent museum uh, directors, you know, pushing back a little bit on the strictness of some of these rules um, I, just mm-hmm. because the – the, again, the reality is these these sort of burgeoning collections that have accumulated over the years, and the cost of maintaining them, and 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 just saying, hey, you know, there's got to be some flexibility in these rules, otherwise, you know, we're not going to be able to prosper. And so, I think that already those seeds are already sown, um, and and maybe this will just be another kind of um, progression in that. Well, certainly when I, when I read the, the AAM guidelines for how to define direct care, um, you realize that that is a term that has been debated since they first put something out in the early 90s, and nobody seems to be able to agree on it. And that, that term is front and center at the, of this debate. So, um, yeah, I mean, to your point, everything, this is, this is not going to be settled even with this uh, statement or after the fact. So. Um, I think we're going to see, you know, AAMD having to uh, confront it pretty significantly. So um, any final thoughts uh, about this or anything else you'd like to add? 
I guess just, you know, one additional point, which I think is a parallel consideration. It's not exactly the same as, you know, museums struggle um, because people don't want to give, they're, they're not allowed to use certain, um, certain um, parts of their own funding and their own uh, assets, cash assets on operating expenses. So that's a problem. But they also suffer increasingly from um, the parallel problem that donors, philanthropists, don't want to give for operating expenses. So, you know, the Met, even the Met, which looks like it couldn't possibly need more donations, you think about the big donations that it's gotten, it's to build new wings, to build fountains, to, you know, build facilities. It's, it's not to pay the janitors and pay the electricity bill. And, um, you know, so there's, there's also some reconsideration that needs to happen, I think, on the philanthropic side in terms of why people give and what they're, you know, whether it's because they're getting something out of it, which is, which is almost always the case at least in large amounts, or um, whether philanthropy needs to really be re-envisioned as sort of supporting an institution from the ground up, which would be paying for things like keeping the lights on, repairs, salaries, and stuff like that. So um, maybe this moment will cause a rethinking of those priorities too. Yeah, let's hope so. Well, um, unless there's any further comments, I really appreciate your time and your expertise on the subject. Um, and, uh, please everyone, uh, following along, look up the art law podcast. It's available where all other, uh, podcasts are available. And, uh, with that, thank you, Steve. And thank you, Katie. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Sally Yurkovich, Mark Gold, Stephen Schindler, and Katie Wilson-Milne of the Art Law Podcast for lending their time and expertise to the subject. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And also, subscribe to the YouTube channel, Association of Registrars and Collection Specialists, so that you get notifications whenever a new video comes out. Thanks again, and until next time. Go wash your hands.